Hello and welcome to this episode of the Complete Interpreter podcast, the podcast by me, Sophie Llewellyn-Smith, aka The Interpreting Coach. On this podcast, you will find all things interpreting skills and also mindset. And one day I am sure I will get around to talking about some marketing as well. Today is actually a mindset episode and I think that's really important because the reason I called my podcast The Complete Interpreter is because you are not just an interpreting or translation machine. There's more to you than that. There are other factors and experiences that have an impact on your work as interpreters. It's not just what you learned at interpreting school and how good you are at applying those techniques. So that is why I like to talk about mindset topics sometimes. Now, today I am drawing inspiration from somebody I'm going to call Stefano, who wrote to me and said, I've been listening to your podcast with a lot of interest. I wonder if you could consider the topic of managing bad performance or errors. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, I hesitated during the translation of an interview on TV. It was nothing major. Still, I couldn't sleep last night. What can I do? Now, this was a question that really got to me and I could really feel for Stefano and what he went through in that situation because I am the kind of person who can still remember some of the mistakes I made when I was training as an interpreter. I was doing my stage, my interpreting traineeship at the European Commission. I can remember some of the exact mistakes I made and what the speeches were where I made those mistakes, even though I passed the test. After four months of my interpreting traineeship, I can still remember the speech about astronauts and cosmonauts and how I made a mistake with the translation of the word bone density uh, and calcium, I think it was. I was working from Greek into English. And at the end, the feedback I got from the examiners was, you know some really complicated words in Greek, but you don't know basic words like calcium. Oh dear, that was harsh. (laughs) Especially as, it was true by the way, that I did not know the word calcium because the word calcium in Greek doesn't sound anything like calcium, not like in German um, or in French, calcium. So I didn't recognize it. And my background knowledge at the age of 21 was not good enough to get me through that difficult moment. However, I digress. I can remember many other mistakes. For example, when I was an au pair in Munich at the age of 18, I can remember wanting to impress the family I was living with by cooking lunch. So the girls were at school, uh, the mum was out at her English lessons, and I had brought with me a recipe book called uh, something like Pasta Beans and Pulses, because I was already a vegetarian. And they quite liked sort of health food. They sometimes made these little rissoles out of something called Grünkern because they would go to the the health food shop and buy interesting grains and seeds. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try a whole food recipe from this book of mine, which was something like um, fettuccine with hazelnut sauce. Sounded interesting to me. And my family had one of those machines that are a lot more common in Germany than in the UK. I've never known anyone in the UK to have a machine like this, where they could put in whole grains of wheat or rye or barley or whatever Grünkern is. I don't think I ever learnt what that was. And you could, it would basically mill your grains into flour. So I found this absolutely fascinating. And I loved watching them pour in the grains and the flour come out of the bottom. My recipe called for ground hazelnuts. So I thought, great, uh, I am going to stick my hazelnuts into the machine and it will come out as powdered hazelnut, and then I can make my sauce with that. Little did I know, of course, that hazelnuts are very fatty. They contain a lot of oil, as most nuts do. So I poured them into the top of the machine, and the whole machine gummed up. Nothing came out of the bottom. I had no idea what to do. I was in a state of complete panic. No idea how to fix this error. So I said nothing at all and uh, did not complete the dish. And it wasn't until my my host tried to um, use the machine the next time that she discovered that it was gummed up, uh, nothing was coming out of the bottom, 
and she had to dismantle the whole thing and clean it and I had to confess my terrible mistake and I felt really awful about it. It would of course have been better if I had confessed straight away and just said, I'm so sorry, I didn't realise that it would clog the machine, how can I fix it? But I was young enough not to, um, not to be able to respond like that because I was too embarrassed and panicky at having made a mistake. And for me in those days, and still now a little bit, making mistakes is almost the worst thing that could possibly happen. So I completely got it when Stefano wrote to me asking for a podcast episode about how to deal with bad performance or, or errors. I gave a lot of thought to how to respond to that because basically Stefano was, was not asking how to improve his performance. Often I record podcast episodes about how to use salami technique, how to uh, refresh your retour, how to improve your output or whatever it is. Basically, how to improve your interpreting skills. But that is not what Stefano was asking me. He was asking how to let go. And he said himself that the mistake he made was nothing serious, really. So I have a lot to say today. I hope that I will say something that Stefano and others of you uh, can relate to and that you will find it helpful. Not everything that I'm going to say will be relevant for everybody because this is a, a mindset issue. It's a question of your psychology, your personality, what you hold on to. And everybody's different. We all respond to different techniques. My starting point then was, let's say you were an employee in a company and something like this happened. You made a mistake at work and then you found it difficult to sleep. What would you do or what would you be expected to do? And I think the answer is you would be expected to hold your hand up and say, I'm sorry, I made a, a mistake in the last report. There was, was a factual inaccuracy or whatever it is that you did. Basically, hold your hand up and confess apologize and work out how to rectify that mistake and make it right. So uh, amend the text, um, reprint it, whatever it is you needed to do to eliminate that error. And then depending on the gravity of the error, uh, you would be expected, I think, to give some thought to how you could avoid it happening again in the future. Do you need further training? Do you need to think before you act? For example, um, don't draft an email and send it in the heat of the moment, but sleep on it. Now, I think part of the difficulty with interpreting is that if we make a mistake in the booth, sometimes we get no feedback from the client or, or anybody. Uh, I think it's very rare for somebody, or certainly in my line of work, to come back to us and go, ha, you made a mistake. Um, at 1.36 today, when you were interpreting, you said X, Y, Z, and the number was wrong. So we don't often get that feedback. Digression, we do, again, in my line of work, quite often hear delegates saying, oh, uh, the interpreter must have got it wrong because I would never have said that. So we're sometimes used as scapegoats and uh, unfairly accused of misinterpreting what a delegate has said. But that's a whole other story. So I won't go, uh, go into that any further. But I have found it very irritating sometimes when a delegate in the room or the chairman has said, oh, the interpreter got it wrong. And I know 100% that I did not get it wrong. And either they're trying to cover themselves um, or, or use the interpreter as a scapegoat. But often we interpret and we make mistakes that we, sometimes we're aware of them at the time, sometimes we only realise later, sometimes we don't even realise that we made a mistake. And I think the approach that you can take in other workplaces of uh, confess to the mistake, apologise, rectify it, etc., is very difficult to apply when you're a conference interpreter and you're in the heat of that moment. And, th and there are many factors to consider here. One is that if you make quite a few mistakes and you go back and correct them and you're working in simultaneous, pretty soon you're going to lose the confidence of the audience. They, 
in my experience, they don't like it. And I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, years ago, I was working at a management committee at SCIC, the European Commission. It was probably a serials management committee because when I started out as an interpreter, that was one of the meetings that they used to stick you in to um, sort of build you up <laughs> to greater things so that you could get used to them. And actually those meetings were quite technical. This was pre-internet days, if you can imagine it. So you absolutely could not search your glossary or Google anything. Uh, you had to bring a paper glossary with you and there were lots and lots of figures because they would always go through a market report. Long story short, those meetings were quite difficult. And I very often, every Wednesday afternoon, I would do the Serials Management Committee and sometimes some of the others which were worse, like the Beef Management Committee or the Wine Management Committee, very technical, uh, or Eggs and Dairy. So here I was in the Management Committee interpreting and I can't remember how old I was or how long I'd been working for, not very long. Maybe I was in my mid-twenties. I interpreted the meeting and I thought, um, I'm going to go and talk to the UK delegation and ask them for some feedback because I don't get feedback anymore now that I've passed the exam and I'm actually working in real meetings. So I'm going to go and ask the UK delegation what they thought. And off I went. I went up to um, a delegate and I said, hello, I was one of your interpreters today and I just wanted to ask how you found the interpreting. And she said, oh, yes, it was fine. Yeah, everything was fine, except the bit where you said, uh, the interpreter isn't quite sure what the speaker said. And indeed, there had been a point that I hadn't understood or had misheard or whatever. And so on microphone, I said something like, um, the interpreter isn't quite sure. Or I don't even remember my exact words. But basically, the one or two places in the whole meeting where I had either corrected a figure or expressed any kind of uncertainty... Those were the bits that the UK delegation did not like because they just wanted me to spoon feed the information and they didn't want to have to think about whether it was right, whether it was wrong, whether the interpreter was having some existential crisis because she was afraid she had made a mistake. So I'm sure this is not the case in every kind of interpreting setting, but at the conferences where I interpret, frankly, the delegates are not really interested in... Um, my imposter syndrome or my, <laughs> my uh, existential crisis. And so for that reason, it's not a good idea to self-correct a lot when you're interpreting. It loses the confidence of the audience. And this is something I found really difficult when I was training as an interpreter because my trainers would say to me, you've got to hide it better if you're not sure or you've got to bluff more or however they phrased it. There were many ways that they phrased it. And indeed, I have ended up saying similar things to interpreting students in my life. I didn't like it at the time because it felt like I was a fraud and it felt like I was making mistakes, but pretending that I never made mistakes. So I found that very difficult, but I came to understand why my trainers were saying that. And that is to do with retaining the, the confidence of the audience. Now, if you're interpreting and in the middle you realize that you've made a significant factual error that is important to the meeting and to the delegates understanding of what's going on. For example, you have got an important figure wrong for next year's budget or uh, you've got something the wrong way around and you've said that we're going to abolish a measure instead of saying introducing it or something important like that. Then by all means correct it quickly, don't make a big deal of it, and move on. But um, you can't keep making continuous corrections. And if you are, I think you need to give some thought to why you are making continuous errors, even if they're not massively significant errors. For example, it could be that your passive languages, your C languages, are not up to scratch and you should do a refresher or um, take a course on uh, legal Greek or, or technical German or whatever it is to, to improve your C language. Or it could be a question of technique. It could be that if you find yourself self-correcting a lot or having a lot of false starts when you're interpreting and you have to keep changing the beginning of the sentence, 
It could be that you need to work a bit on your décalage because your décalage is so short that you're not giving yourself time to analyze the beginning of the speaker's idea. And then you have to go back and correct because you've, you have to change course midstream. Or it could be a question of background knowledge, that the reason that you're making certain mistakes is because you simply don't know enough about the topic, or you haven't done enough research, you're not familiar with the speaker's views. So there are many reasons why interpreters make mistakes. And if it's any of the ones that I've mentioned, you know, if you have a bad day, you make some mistakes in your interpreting and you reflect on those errors a bit, if it's your knowledge of the C language or uh, your décalage or your background knowledge, then that suggests a bit of CPD is in order to try to sort those things out. If, on the other hand, like Stefano, because I know Stefano quite well, I have uh, seen him at several of the courses that I run, I know that he works assiduously on his CPD. So if you're doing all the right things and you are being given the kinds of assignments that you want of the kind of level that you're interested in, then maybe there's some imposter syndrome creeping in if you find that it keeps you up at night. Now, this episode is not about imposter syndrome per se, so I'm not going to dwell on that at length. But I am going to transition now to, to talking about um, mindset issues. Because as I said at the top of the program, Stefano was not really asking me about interpreting techniques. He wasn't saying, how can I improve my interpreting? He was saying, how can I let go of an, a mistake like that, which wasn't even a really serious mistake, but it kept me up all night. Now, that reminded me of another story about interpreting. I cannot recall what meeting I was in. Again, it was a long time ago. I was in Brussels. I was interpreting from Greek. It always seems to be Greek somehow, doesn't it? Mind you, I can think of plenty of hairy situations I've had working between German and English. Anyway, it was Greek, uh, which means I was being taken on relay by anything between three and 20 booths, probably. And at some point, the speaker gave a figure. And so I interpreted that figure and I wasn't sure whether I had got it right. It was quite a big figure, 500,000 something or other. And I wasn't sure. And so obviously my memories are a little bit um, vague because this was over 20 years ago, uh, maybe, maybe 25 years ago. And I'm quite sure I switched off the microphone and I probably said to my colleague in the booth, oh, I'm not sure I got the figure right. What I do remember is that at the end of the meeting, when everybody in the room was packing up and my colleagues in the booth were packing up, I said to this colleague something like, maybe I'll just go down and have a word with the Greek delegate and ask about that figure. And my colleague was absolutely gobsmacked. She said, why would you do that? What's the point? And I said, but well, because I want to know if I made a mistake or not. And at the time, that seemed quite logical to me, <laughs> that I could go down, talk to the delegate, and they would either say, oh, it was 525,623, or they would say something else. And either I would go, oh, no, I did get it wrong. Oh, no, woe is me, hair shirt, uh, you know, self-flagellating. Or I would go, oh, I got it right. Everything's fine. Looking back on it now, I think to myself, if I had actually gone down and asked the delegate about the figure, that I think they would have stared at me as if I were completely mad. Because for a start, they wouldn't have remembered what they had said or which bit I was talking about. Secondly, the meeting went on perfectly fine. Nothing ground to a halt. Nobody went, what? You can't possibly mean 525,000? That must be wrong. Um, and if I went and quizzed the delegate, that delegate, I think, would just be irritated with me and, and uh, it would have been a hassle for them. And it was not necessary because 
Frankly, if that figure had been badly mistranslated and it was essential to the flow of the meeting, someone would have said something. Either they would have put their hand up during the meeting and said, that figure must be wrong, or they would have gone to see the Greek delegate and had a chat bilaterally afterwards. But basically, nobody died, everything went on, the meeting continued as usual. And so it would have been really quite strange for me then to go and talk to the speaker and um, sort of harangue them. <laughs> go, well, what was that figure? I want to make sure I got it right so that I can feel okay. And this is what, what um, became extremely clear to me is that my impulse to go and talk to the speaker was nothing to do with making sure that I was doing my job better or that the meeting went better or serving the client's needs. It was that I wanted to feel better about myself. And I didn't want to feel as if I had made a mistake because I didn't want it hanging over me. And so I was hoping that by getting the confirmation that I had not made a mistake, then I could just draw a line under the whole incident and go home. Whereas the colleague in the booth to whom I, I had said, oh, I might just nip and have a word with the speaker, clearly thought this was bonkers because why? <laughs> it was done and dusted. This is the point with interpreting, isn't it? That you don't chew it over and dwell, dwell on it forever. It's, it's gone. It's transient. And so she absolutely could not understand that impulse. And I guess that's partly personality type. I think it depends on how you feel about making mistakes and from the many stories I've told already, you will realize that to me, making a mistake is some massive tragedy. And it's something I've had to teach myself to be more accepting of. Because at the end of the day, everybody makes mistakes. Human beings make mistakes. And if you've done everything in your power to avoid a mistake, if you have proper training and qualification as an interpreter, if you practice regularly, if you do CPD to keep your skills up, if you've prepared the meeting appropriately and done all the research, and, 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 and you still make a mistake, you are not the only one. Because every interpreter at some point in their career has made a mistake. And sometimes the reasons for those mistakes are well beyond our control. They are things like poor sound or the unpredictable nature of what people say in meetings so that suddenly they bring something up that you've never heard of um, or that you mishear or that they mispronounce sometimes. So some of the reasons why we make mistakes are beyond our control and some of them are Maybe not beyond our control, but they are part of being human. For example, you had a really bad night's sleep because you have two children under the age of three. Everybody makes mistakes. So the question is then how you react to those mistakes and how you can let go of them. Now, please don't misunderstand this whole podcast as an attempt to say, oh, let's just lower the bar and we can say any old thing and it doesn't matter because it's only human. <laughs> Please don't take it that way. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. Uh, I would certainly encourage all of you to strive for the highest possible standards and to try and be as faithful as possible when interpreting a speaker's words and intentions. But even if you do that, you will sometimes make mistakes. Now, in Stefano's case, it wasn't a serious mistake. He said it was nothing serious, but it was still weighing on me when I got home and I couldn't sleep. The first thing that I'm going to talk about then, trying to tackle this from a mindset or, or psychological perspective, the first thing I want to talk about is transitioning. Transition from your work day into the rest of your day. When you get home, you chill out, you um, take your dog for a walk or you play with your toddler or whatever it is, that part of you that is no longer your work persona. Because I think if you've had a bad day at work for whatever reason, it can be difficult to make that transition. You maybe still have intrusive thoughts going round and round in your head. Now, there are various techniques and different things will work for different people. I can tell you what my husband does. My husband is a police officer and he spent the past four years or so uh, working in child sexual exploitation. 
and safeguarding cases in the UK. So lots of really horrible stuff. And now he works in homicides and kidnappings. <laughs> so not sure if that's an improvement. But anyway, his technique is very simple. He rides his bike to work whenever he can, even though it's an hour and a half away. Now, he, he doesn't always do that journey in both directions because three hours cycle commuting would be a lot and leave him zero time to do anything else. But he tries to do at least half or three quarters of it on his bike most days. And that is his genius way of switching off and transitioning between the very high pressure, high responsibility environment that he's in at work and then what happens when he gets home. And so he's had a chance to gradually shed all that work stuff, get the adrenaline levels down so that when he comes home, he can be a different person, not the one who's thinking about work. Most of the time, this this is a good technique and it works. Uh, it depends how big the thing is that he has weighing on his mind. So cycle commuting or walking home from work, uh, anything like that is a great way to mark that transition. But there are other ways of doing it. For example, taking a shower and getting changed when you get home. Or maybe even having a power nap. Or if you've had a bad day, you might find that calling a friend to have a vent is one way that you can kind of shed that load and move on. Uh, you just have to pick the right friend to do that and be really aware of your needs. Is what you need just to vent and to talk it over and say things out loud? Or is what you need a problem solver, someone who will find solutions for you? Because if you approach the wrong person, basically, you may both get really, really frustrated. <laughs> so if what you need is to give voice to your frustration and just vent or have a rant, but the person that you are speaking to is a problem solver, so they keep offering you solutions, but you don't want the solutions, you just want a chance to talk it over, then you can both end up frustrated. Not, not that I'm speaking from bitter experience or anything. <laughs> uh, another way that you can make that transition between work life and, and home life, and at the same time try to let go of what happened at work, is journaling. If you write about what happened, uh, that can be a good way of processing it, if you like, in a, in a psychological way and being able then to let it go. Uh, there have been many studies about this. One study in particular that looked at college students who were asked to journal every evening before bed and who experienced lower levels of worry and better sleep duration and quality because they had journaled, whatever you want to call it, writing a diary, just writing about the things that bothered you. And by the way, the aim of all these techniques is not so much to ignore the bad thing that happened or the mistake that you made or, or get over it. Uh, it's more to process it in a way that will allow you to release the stress or or move on. Uh, oh, I've already given you lots of ideas. So cycle commuting or walking, uh, calling a friend to vent, journaling. Other people might try meditation or exercise. And I will say quite a lot more about exercise in a moment. Uh, you could also write a gratitude list. If you're not feeling great about the way your day went, you can just take 10 minutes or five minutes to write a list of all the things that you're grateful for. And there's quite a lot of positive research about that. You can use rituals to bookend your day. And I've alluded to one possible ritual, which would be having a shower. Or you could also have a ritual of um, changing clothes and sitting down and having a cup of herbal tea. So different things will work for different people. Now, other than finding a way to transition healthily between your, your work day and your home persona, I want to come back to the fact that Stefano found it really hard to let go of this mistake that he had made, uh, so much so that he was unable to sleep that night. And 
I was trying to think to myself where that comes from. Why was he not able to put that mistake in context, which was basically it didn't cause a massive crisis at work. It didn't even cause any problem at work. So he was the one who was suffering afterwards, not the clients. Where did that come from? And I want to address two different possibilities here. One of them is unrealistic expectations or perfectionism, basically. The idea that we need to do our job perfectly, otherwise we're not doing it well enough. And the other point I want to address is about stress and the difference between stresses, spelt O-R-S at the end, so stressors, the things that make us stressed, versus the stress itself and its effect on the body. So I'll talk first of all about unrealistic expectations or perfectionism. Now, I know lots of people who are perfectionists. I have worked with uh, interpreters who are perfectionists and who were doing an incredible job. I can think of one colleague in particular who came to me because she wanted to take um, a language adding test at SCIC from French into English. I've never met someone who had worked so hard. She had interpreted every speech on the speech repository multiple times, probably every UN speech as well. I mean, she'd done a thousand practice speeches. I'm not kidding. And she was so good, so good. So what was going on there was just um, some anxiety, an inability to be objective about her performance compared to other interpreters, uh, some imposter syndrome, yeah, and I, I've encountered that quite a lot, actually, in the people I work with uh, when I do coaching or on some of my courses. How can you overcome it? Well, there's no silver bullet. It's not something you overcome overnight because that pattern of perfectionism is something that's laid down when you're a child. Now, I'm no psychologist, so I'm not going to shrink your head right now, <laughs> but I'm going to suggest one technique that works for quite a lot of people. And that is the double standard technique, in inverted commas, which is really about showing yourself the same compassion that you would show somebody else. So if you've made a mistake at work or you've had a bad day at work, sit down and think to yourself, what if this was my friend slash colleague? Um, and if you like, personify them and pick, pick a, a friend of yours or a colleague who had done this at work. Would I think that they were an incompetent interpreter? Would I think that they hadn't worked hard enough to prepare the meeting? Would I conclude that they were a bad interpreter because of this one incident? And the aim of doing this is to try to put it into perspective better and to be more realistic about the scale of the mistake that you made and its potential impact and also whether it's actually quite normal or acceptable for interpreters to make that kind of mistake. Now, you may still wish that you had never made the mistake. You may still think it's, it would be preferable if you had never made that mistake. However, <laughs> bearing in mind that it is human to make errors, if it was somebody that you respected and liked who had made these mistakes, do you think that that would be forgivable uh, and how would you view the error if somebody else had made it? So that's one technique you can try to put things in perspective. Another thing that you can try is to reflect on the effects of your perfectionism, let's call it that, or your expectations. And what I'm getting at here is, are your expectations functional? Do they serve a useful purpose? In other words, do they make you a better interpreter, a more competent interpreter and a happier person? Or do they get in your way sometimes because they don't necessarily make you a better interpreter and they cause you stress and uh, sleepless nights if you make a mistake? That's a process of self-reflection. You'd need to sit with that for a little bit and give some thought to whether your expectations are desirable or whether they are actually a hindrance. Maybe you'll conclude that they're both, in fact. 
And I think the, the difficulty that a lot of people have is in distinguishing between high standards, which I think is very desirable, and perfectionism, which I think is undesirable. I think there's still a narrative that some people have that perfectionism is a good thing because it means we're trying to do our best. But that's not what perfectionism is. Perfectionism is that you can never be good enough, that there's no room for error, there's no room for being human or for growth. There's only you do it perfectly or not at all. And that's quite different from having really high standards and, and seeking excellence. So have a think about your expectations and whether they are realistic, but also whether they are helpful to you in your job and as a person. And finally, on this subject of perfectionism and expectations, if you've had a bad day like that and you you made an error or several mistakes when you were interpreting, just live with those feelings for a bit. What is it that you feel? Do you feel disappointed in yourself? Do you feel threatened? Basically, do you feel afraid that um, somebody at work will have picked up on the mistake, that you'll get into trouble? Have a think about those consequences and whether the consequences are realistic as well, or are you catastrophizing and making a mountain out of a molehill? But if you manage to identify those feelings of fear or disappointment or whatever they may be, just allow yourself to feel those feelings instead of trying to ignore them or squash them down or get over it in inverted commas. Because if you squash the feelings and don't acknowledge them and feel them, well, then those are the thoughts that will probably be circling your mind at bedtime and preventing you from sleeping. Right. I said then that I would talk about stressors. But um, since I'm British English and not American English, I don't pronounce the rhotic R. So I'm afraid that word that ends O-R-S in my idiolect is pronounced stressors, which is very confusing because it sounds like the plural of the word stress, as in stresses and strains. But I will at least outline what I'm talking about. So it is the difference between a stressful event, a stressor, and the stress itself, which which has a lot of physiological consequences on your body. Before I do anything else, I want to mention a book for you. And this is a book about burnout by Emily uh, and her sister Amelia, I think it is, Nagoski. You've probably heard quite a lot about stress in your life and what it is. The fact that stress is an event outside your body or inside your body that triggers a cascade of hormonal reactions in your body, so the release of adrenaline in particular, and then later on cortisol, and the fact that this cascade of hormones then leads to a load of other physiological responses. For example, your heart rate rises, your breathing rate rises, your focus narrows, so you maybe lose some of your peripheral vision. Your digestion slows down as the blood flow to your digestive organs is reduced because your body has to focus on getting fuel and oxygen to your muscles so that you can run away from a mammoth or a saber-toothed tiger or whatever uh, stressful event you are experiencing. Now, I think what we tend to forget in the modern world is that if we've experienced a stressful event, for example, a delegate reading out their instructions at top speed and you don't have the document and the sound quality is really poor and 23 booths are taking you on relay. That's your stressful event. What we tend to forget is that when that stressful event is over, the effects of the stress on your body are not over. You still have hormones sloshing around. You still have your sympathetic nervous system on high alert and your body still wants to fight or flee. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that term, the fight or flight response. Now, back in the day when we were hunting saber-toothed tigers, perhaps we had better ways of getting to the end of that stress cycle, all those things that are happening in your body. 
because perhaps you would um, throw a spear at the saber-toothed tiger and kill it and then you go yes I killed the tiger you run back to your village everybody celebrates together you cook some saber-toothed tiger and eat it and so there's a combination of things that mean that you feel safe again and that you have come down from that stress response. Nowadays, we don't always have that completion of the cycle. And this is very well explained in the book I was telling you about. We don't always get to the end of that cycle or tunnel or however you want to describe it. So we get stuck with still having the physiological reactions to stress, the elevated hormone levels, the elevated heart rate, or maybe intrusive thoughts. And we we don't quite make it to a place of safety, uh, metaphorically speaking, before the next stressful event happens. So in their book, the Nagoski sisters explain some of the things that you can do to try to get to the end of that stress cycle. And the absolute number one thing to do is physical exercise. Now, I'm sure you've heard a million times that exercise is good for you. Uh, it's good for your mental health. It helps uh, reduce the risk of depression and anxiety. It's obviously good for you physically. It reduces the risk of heart disease. Uh, so many positive benefits of exercise. But it is also the most important thing that you can do to try to keep on top of your stress. Now, if you're active, of course, it will release neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin. Uh, you'll get a nice burst of endorphins, generally speaking. And there's been research on the fact that a single instance of moderate exercise can reduce rumination. This is the thoughts, you know, circling round and round, that might prevent you sleeping, for example. So exercise. How much exercise? Between 20 and 60 minutes is ideal every day so that you can work through the day's stresses or even uh, start getting through the backlog of stress that's accumulated in your body. But anything really that will end up with a shift in your mood or a noticeable reduction in your tension or how deeply you're breathing is what you should aim for. As usual, this varies from person to person. So for some people, like my husband, and I mentioned this earlier, exercise is the key. For other people, it might be exercise in a different form, like yoga, something more meditative and more focused on breathing. Uh, you may want to actually try some diaphragmatic breathing exercises at home. Other things that can help you get through that stress cycle are laughter, put on a funny TV program or play with your kids if you still have young children and they make you laugh. <laughs> Physical affection. When's the last time you went up to somebody and just said, I need a hug? And it needs to be a long hug. You know, not just that quick hug of moral support, but a long hug until you feel relaxed and you can let go of the tension. And that type of hug that lasts 20 seconds or more uh, will shift your hormones. It will reduce your blood pressure and it will release uh, the lovely hormone oxytocin that makes us feel calmer and more relaxed. So there are lots of different things that you can do. For some people, it might be doing something creative. You know, you get home and you play an instrument, play some music, listen to some music. Music can shift moods dramatically. But what the Nagoski sisters say very clearly is that the fact that you've removed the stressful event doesn't mean that the stress is over. I'm going to say that again because I think it's so important. Just because the stressor has disappeared does not mean that the stress has disappeared and its effect on your body and your psyche. Right, I can see I've been speaking for a really long time. So the very last thing that I wanted to address briefly was sleep routine. Since Stefano mentioned sleep when he wrote to me, 
Now, I'm not, this is not a whole podcast episode about good sleep. And I'm sure you know that you're supposed to have good sleep hygiene and have a routine before bed. So, you know, the worst possible thing that you can do is, uh, let me see, do masses of high intensity exercise just before bed or have a really heavy meal, then watch the news um, <laughs> and then have a strong coffee, right? I think everybody knows that those things are counterproductive. So perhaps you already have a routine where you wind down for 15 or 30 minutes before bed and you try not to look at social media anymore. You avoid taking work to bed, etc., etc. Um, but the the two things that I want to mention are writing exercises, which can help avoid these intrusive thoughts that you can't let go of. Exercise one, if you've had a bad day, you've made mistakes and you're dissatisfied with how it went, put those feelings on paper. Write down your thoughts. This is a bit like the journaling that I was talking about earlier. Write down your thoughts, write down your feelings on paper. And then if necessary, even write at the bottom, this is how I feel. I can't do anything more about this tonight, so I will sleep on it and address it tomorrow. Or you may not need to write that down. You just set the paper aside and then go to bed, safe in the knowledge that you have uh, sort of externalized those bad feelings and that tomorrow, if necessary, you can think about whether you actually need to take action. Do you need to talk to someone about what happened or do you need to book on a course to improve your skills in certain areas? But as we said, often that is not necessary. Often the mistake is actually relatively trivial or at least didn't have a noticeable or significant impact. And so it's more about you and your mind being able to let go of it. So that is a technique that you can try in order to let go of those feelings. And another exercise that you can try is writing a to-do list for the next day. So this is not so much to do with whether you had a bad day. It's more for people who feel overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that they have to do tomorrow or their endless uh, to-do list or the endless demands on their time or the fact that they're constantly thinking about um, some task they have to accomplish tomorrow or a deadline. Research has shown that people who write a to-do list before bed sleep better and sleep for longer than people who don't. And in fact, they found that the longer and more detailed the to-do list was, the better the effect. This was a 2017 study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. So the outcome is a very simple one that if you write a relatively detailed to-do list, so if you spend maybe up to five minutes on it, then I was going to say it will help you sleep better. I can't say that for sure. It's a very individual thing. But in a study, overall, that was the effect that people slept better and they got to sleep faster if they had written down a kind of plan of what they wanted to do the next day. So that wasn't hanging over them and preventing them from getting to sleep. And by the way, sleep and stress are competitors. So if the stress that you are still experiencing from your day activates parts of the brain that are used for sleep, then the stress is going to win. I think I've said pretty much everything I wanted to, to say. One last thing on sleep is if you find that you're lying there for more than 20 minutes and you can't get to sleep, then get up. Get up and do something else. Read a book, watch something non-demanding on TV and then have another go rather than lying there um, with your thoughts whirling round and round going nowhere. I've said a lot. I feel like there's still so much more I could say on the subject of meditation or mindfulness. Um, but maybe that I'll have to leave that for another time. I hope that if you've ever experienced a bad day or making mistakes that uh, weighed heavily on you, that you will have found something today in this podcast episode that will help you let go of it in the future. 
But take the time, if you can, to try to identify where those feelings come from. Because if the mistake itself was not a massive one, or if you did make a mistake but you did your best to rectify it, then it's more a psychological issue of how you perceive yourself, what your expectations are for yourself, and whether you feel that making a mistake is a tragedy in a way that's that's unrealistic. <sighs> it takes one to know one. If that is the case, can I just mention my growth mindset challenge, which you can find on my website, theinterpretingcoach.com. Just scroll down the homepage and you will find a section called free resources. In that section, there is something called a growth mindset challenge. You can sign up for it. You will receive a sequence of emails. I can't remember if there are five or maybe even seven. Each one with a different challenge, a different aspect of growth mindset for you to consider. And there is definitely uh, a section in there about making mistakes. Take a look at the show notes if you like. I will put a link to the burnout book in there that I mentioned earlier. And I also have a course on acute stress. So it's not exactly the topic of today's podcast since we were talking about the post-stress reaction. My course is more about what to do ahead of or when you're in the middle of a stressful situation. But I will put the link to that in the show notes. And I think that's it for today. I've spoken at great length. Stefano, I hope that you find something in today's episode that will be useful to you. Okay, everybody, please feel free to fill in the form to tell me what you would like me to talk about next. You'll find the link to that form in the show notes. It really only has one question. What would you like me to talk about next? <laughs> and I really appreciate um, reading all your suggestions. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode and speak to you soon. Bye.